Welcome to Medical Misfits. My guest today is Stephen Gilbert. Stephen Gilbert is a veterinarian and professor for regulatory science at the University Hospital of Dresden. Before that, he worked as a regulatory affairs manager specializing in clinical evaluation at Biotronic in Berlin, which is a large and established medical device manufacturer, and then for Ada Health, which is also in Berlin, as a director of clinical studies and clinical evaluation. Initially, after graduating as a veterinarian in 2001, he worked as a veterinarian and veterinary surgeon for around 10 years in the UK. In addition to studying veterinary sciences at the University of Glasgow, he did a master's degree in biomathematics, bioinformatics, and computational biology at the University of Leeds, and followed that up with a PhD in computational biology. I met Stephen when I was working at Ada here in Berlin in 2020. We stayed in touch over the years, and I suppose our career paths somewhat converged when he moved from the industry uh, to, ac uh, to academia, now as a professor of regulatory sciences. And um, one interesting aspect is um, that I'm, I'm not even sure if he's the only professor for regulatory sciences in Germany, but we'll talk about that, which makes it very interesting. Anyway, at the time, while well, he moved to academia, I moved from being a one-person um, consultant for regulatory compliance to building a small company, which still does consulting for regulatory compliance. So both of us kind of like moved along in the regulatory system, at least a bit. And like with all the prior guests too, we loosely stayed in touch over the years. And um, I recently just thought Stephen would be such an interesting person to talk to after talking to Fabienne because I realized, hey, uh, Stephen is actually Fabienne's mentor and both of them worked at Ada too. So I thought there were really many interesting aspects there. So what are those interesting aspects, which in my opinion, make Stephen like extremely unique? Um, He's the first professor ever on this podcast, so that's interesting. And as I mentioned, maybe really the only one for regulatory science. I might be wrong there, but I'm definitely excited to talk about like, what is regulatory science. Um, he's one of very, very few people who've worked both in startups and in the larger established medical device industry. And he's also the first veterinarian to be a guest here. So I think that's really, really cool. And personally, I think that doesn't make a huge difference. That still makes him a medical misfit because from an outsider's perspective, I think studying veterinary sciences is pretty much the same as studying human medicine. You just go through like a lot of stuff. You have to learn a lot of stuff and then you go into your first job and probably don't get paid very well for working a lot of hours in a hospital, except that you treat animals instead of humans. So I think no big difference is there. Um, Anyway, I'm super excited to have Stephen here with me today. Um, welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for talking to me today. Cool. Let's dive in. And as you might have expected, my first question, which always is my first question, is, well, what made you stop working as a vet? The interesting part is you did work for as, as a vet for quite a while. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And it's one I... I've mulled over a lot in my my head, and I mulled over a lot in my head before I actually stopped being a vet. So I I like would freely admit that through my course of studying as a vet, I was already asking this question quite a lot. So I was I was absolutely dedicated to this career direction since I was about thirteen. So I'd, I'd already invested a huge amount of time and effort in and training before I actually started in in vet school. Um, so, but by the time I was kind of questioning whether it was the best direction for me. I'd already been kind of involved in it for eight years 
as a vet, you have to do lots of kind of experience, going to practices, um, work experience in the UK before you actually start and spending time on farms and assisting with vets and assisting with farms right. and stuff. So, so I was already kind of eight years in by the time I started asking the question, is this really absolutely the thing for me? And I was always very interested at university in science. So in molecular, you know, biomolecular science, in anatomy, particularly in pathology, physiology. So I started to ask those questions. Um, I did something when I was at vet school, which is called a intercalated degree. I'm not sure if you have that so much in Germany. It's where you step out of your bachelor's degree for one mm -hmm. or two years and you do a separate bachelor's degree. So you step out of medicine or dentistry and you study um, usually bachelor of science degree. Um, you could oh. study biology or um, I studied molecular biology and I was already kind of very, very interested in molecular sciences so that um, um, kind of already showed I was going in that direction. And then I, I kind of got to the end of the course and I, I wasn't quite sure should I start practicing. And at that time there was a, a really large animal disease epidemic that happened in the UK and I actually stepped into practicing for for a year and a half in that or at least 12 months in that area and maybe i'll come back to that later because it's actually relevant to some part of my career progression i was working for the government in a in a kind of project job area and then mm -hmm. after that i had this decision do i go in a company direction do i do a phd or do i try a period as a vet and i thought i would test it out and, and try it but i was always a little bit unsure if it was absolutely for me and when I started it, like it's got many, many advantages as a job. Like if, if you work as a vet, even more so than as a doctor, you're kind of thrown in at the deep end. You're doing quite advanced surgery from day one, usually without any supervision unless you ask for it. You're a huge variety of different problems and animals and you know, surgery right across gastrointestinal and um, abdominal and um, reproductive and orthopedic. So it's kind of very, very exciting. But I, but I quite quickly realized that I'm much much more suited to project I, i'm enthusiastic much more enthusiastic i wouldn't even say suited enthusiastic about project work work mm -hmm. actually multiple project work where you're um planning a project you're seeing if you you know you can get authorization to do a project you're maybe pitching for a project you're then starting that off you're building a team together to run that project if it's collaborative you're starting the initial work you're looking at results you're adapting that project you're going through all the different phases you're critically important driving that project over the finish line, completing the project. So my kind of passion is completing projects and then <laughs> seeing the effects of that project and then the kind of post project phase and then building into other projects and normally having multiple of those running simultaneously, which is an area of work in terms of what you do at the moment in, in your company and regulatory that is all day-to-day -day work. Whereas within clinical veterinary medicine or clinical practice that's absolutely not part of the work unless you're doing science alongside your work the core work of clinical medicine is um is a list-based approach where you go in in the morning you look at your list you're responsible for taking patients off that list treating those patients in quite a stressful environment usually in a manner of minutes or hours and usually completing them within one day. You may have some situations where they occur over several days, and you may, of course, see them again you know, two or three weeks later, but they're not really a project in the same way. They're of a planning mm -hmm. in the same way. Of course, there's a bit of an overlap with certain types of medical practice. So that, that fundamentally is why I stopped being a vet. If I could go into lots more detail on that, do you have any follow-up questions on that? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, and, and this might be... Uh slightly besides the topic but one thing you mentioned is that as a vet you can actually 
you get thrown into the deep end and you can already like start doing some operations without a lot of supervision. I was just very curious about that as a, well, as a, as a, um, as a, as a doctor in human medicine, it's like, if you're lucky, you can do an operation after six years of internship in the hospital. Um, and is it like, is it different for vets because you're like, um, yeah, because it's just like less, less rigorous or like less, um, because the, the <clears throat> there's a higher diversity of animals and you simply like, just can't train in a practical way like that much. Or, um, I mean, to me, it sounds extremely exciting. Like you start working and then you're like, okay, um, or, or, like doing your studies, you already do a lot of like operating and do a lot of like internships, like, but it sounds so exciting to me. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, like it was very exciting and I was very interested in the, the surgery side of things. So, so you certainly can do, um, um, assist in some procedures and, and depending on your, um, your veterinary clinical supervisors that you're, you're doing, um, rotations with during the course do more or less. Right. I, I can't say as a student that um, I did any actual surgery um, or very very little. So it was mm -hmm. mostly um, um, minor assisting, um, you know, um, holding things, but not actually leading it myself. So I, so I did mostly did that after after I graduated. It, it over time that may have changed a little bit. So I graduated in 2001 and that may have, have changed to some extent. It also depends on the context in which you're working. So I, I went and I did my first clinical years in, in rural Northern Ireland on mixed mm -hmm. practice, going to farms and also then treating dogs and cats who were mostly farm dogs and cats that, that um, people wouldn't generally have invested in, in sending animals to the specialist centers in, in the cities. Um, it was, um, either the local vet who was also you know treating the cows and, and sheep could treat the dogs and do the surgery on the dogs or it was kind of there wasn't another option so it, it was a case of you know if you could um put a, a plate or a pin or an external fixator to fix a broken leg on a sheep dog it would be done and if you couldn't well you'd amputate the leg you know if, the, if they wouldn't pay for it or if there was no other option you'd amputate the leg and that dog would have no more working life and maybe live around the farm. So it was, yeah. it was a situation in, in rural practice where there was certainly an opportunity to do that. And it was, it was really, really interesting. I liked those aspects. I, like I can remember my first cesarean operation on a, on a cow and there on my own on a Sunday afternoon and being so concerned to, to do it really well. And um, everything went really well and probably took a long time over it. But I remember getting a 20 pound, 20, you know, effectively 25 euro tip at the end of it. And that was still a little bit of money back in those days, but it was yeah. also, it wasn't the money. It was the um, the fact that to get a tip is not that common from a farmer mm -hmm. that with their money, and that was um, quite a memory. And that that was, wow. that was it was very it was very interesting work, very interesting to do that and great exposure for my later career. When I speak to um, clinicians and surgeons now, I I know about doing surgery. Now, I don't compare what I did as a veterinary surgeon to what they're doing after the you know six years of um, specific surgical training where they weren't really touching a patient and then very very highly detailed knowledge and the latest techniques it was a very different type of world it may be a little bit more like um, surgery in um, lower middle income countries and maybe a mm -hmm. little bit more like surgery in a, a war situation um, yeah. more medicine than surgery in a, a modern well-equipped um, hospital but still it's it was interesting experience that's so interesting. I would imagine it really teaches you like self-sufficiency to a degree because 
you're alone essentially from the start and then either you can fix the problem w within the constraints which are given like and that may be money of course uh, but also the resources you have um or, or you can't but you can't like bring in your, your random team of colleagues like in the hospital and say like hey uh, i'm stuck like please do this for me or so yeah only in the most extreme circumstances would i've been able to call in a colleague that you quite often you're on a farm on your own with a farmer in the middle of the night operating on a car and you're you couldn't really phone your boss and, and call him in during the day maybe you know one in 50 calls initially i might have phoned for, for yeah help, for help. Wow. but it but it but really you get used to dealing with it and and doing your best to get the best outcome with the with the resources available uh, so that that's very useful experience the experience also of um talking and and dealing with to some extent dealing with but also communicating and and having good communication with uh, mm -hmm. and managing clients whether they be animal owners um of as companion animal owners or farm animal owners is um very useful communication skill yeah. and quite can be quite stressful and can also be quite stressful in all other areas of work and it can be quite a useful set of skills i wouldn't say that i'm the master of these skills in any <laughs> um, but um I, I can be okay at them and when i am good i, I kind of fall back a little bit to my um, veterinary time yeah wow that sounds so exciting to me yeah <laughs> so sidetrack the conversation a bit but i think it was worth it <laughs> and maybe also maybe I mean, just, oh sorry so maybe put, put it in, but we'll probably come back to this later. It's very relevant to regulatory science and clinical evaluation, um, having the understanding of how devices are used, so particularly um, implant devices, um, but also you know, software in interacting with implants, knowing a little bit about doing implants and, and understanding clinical risks and infections and wound problems, etc. It's, it's also very relevant for my day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. Not that... You have, I would have to have that, but there are very few clinical surgeon doctors working in regulatory science. There are some yeah. in notified bodies, as you're aware, the notified bodies, if they're working with surgical implants, they have to have a clinician who's worked as a surgeon in human medicine. And they're very, right. very hard to come by, but, but having that skill set and that knowledge is, is quite useful. Wow, yeah. I could imagine, yeah. I mean, in the area where I am, I hardly see medical doctors at all. Like, because also I'm not, um, I, we we don't do implants like with consulting or whatever, so I haven't been exposed to that. And I only usually see auditors where I sometimes think like, have these people ever been exposed to the real world? I mean, definitely not in surgery and in medicine. <laughs> so some, so that that's that's a bit frustrating sometimes. Yeah, yeah. With with the higher class and implant devices you'd be interacting with um with um medical doctors a lot almost exclusively right interesting cool moving forward so then after practicing as a as a as a vet and veterinary surgeon you decided to stop that what was the next step you did out of that field um so, so maybe if i step back slightly to this work that i did on on food and mouth disease so it's a outbreak sure. of animal infectious disease kind of a national crisis almost in the uk with a huge number of the farms affected by this disease and it was a very interesting time so i did this straight after vet school and it was um it had been going on for six months before when i was in vet school or four months and then i i graduated immediately got a job working kind of for the government in control of um in a regulatory regulated environment and in the control of um infectious disease 
And that was very interesting because it was linked to project work. It was the army was still on the ground at that stage, controlling, assisting the vets to control the outbreak. And it was um, kind of exposure to highly organized, structured project delivery in the way that only the army really can do. So I think companies can be good at that and startups can be good. But the um, army are logistic operations. And it's quite interesting to see logistic operations on a, um, you know, planned on maps over the country in terms of how how projects run. And also within that, I I was initially doing like a little bit like vet work, going out to farms and looking at animals. But later on, I got involved in in managing office-based project teams in, in areas of licensing movement of animals and then licensing the restocking of farms and doing risk assessments on whether a farm could be restocked after it had an infection, infectious disease outbreak and um, doing risk assessments of whether events could occur like horse fairs in an area where there'd been disease. So the reason for mentioning that is it's kind of a little bit on my transition to another work area, which is it's actually much closer to what I do in my day-to-day work than the work in operating on cows was because that's much more like clinical surgical medicine or clinical you know, medical medicine, whereas the, the project work came quite early. So I, I kind of knew that I um, definitely wanted to, to switch to a more project work area. And I was interested in science. I studied um, molecular biology. And I, I knew from studying molecular biology, I was really interested in the theory of molecular biology, um, the, you know, the genomics, the proteomics, the um, how things work. But I also knew that I'm not the best in the wet lab. And I also didn't enjoy the wet lab work. So if you, I don't know if you've ever worked mm-hmm. in a molecular biology lab. Or- so we had like, we had like, how do you call it? Like we had like practical um, causes in, in the wet lab as part of my medical studies. And I, I think if, if you, if you say you weren't good at the wet lab, I think you haven't seen me because I was like terrible in the wet lab. Like I never, I never got the results, which were to be expected. And we were doing very simple experiments, right? <laughs> like it was a catastrophe. <laughs> and those experiments were pretty running over three, four hours in, in the wet lab. So, so I, I, I'm, I, I know those as well. So I did those in veterinary medicine and those are, are one thing and I'm not so, probably okay at those. When you're doing a, a molecular biology project, it's kind of the same thing, but could be extended over four weeks. And your right. final results at the end of the four weeks kind of depend on your precision at the start. And there are okay, various checks that you might do in between time. But your, your, your accuracy of pipetting fluids with um, an Eppendorf you know, micropipette is critical. Your hand-eye coordination, your concentration... And that's not my skill set. So I learned I wasn't the worst in the world at it, but I also wasn't yeah. the best in the world at it. And that extreme attention to detail is not really my personality set. So I was very, very interested in the theory. And I, I wanted to do a, a master's course. And I, I knew from the wet lab stuff, the area of bioinformatics, a little bit, you know, sequencing genes, doing um, um, searches and um, work with the genome databases to a small extent. I thought, okay, that's the side I really like. And I um, also wanted to, to find something kind of completely new. And I, I looked in PhDs that were available. And I kind of looked wet mm-hmm. lab, wet lab PhD, molecular PhD, mostly pipetting. And I eventually kind of found one where the PhD supervisor had posted, kind of a, posted a popular science article he'd written. And that was all about um, modeling, using mathematical modeling to model the arrhythmia patterns on the heart. And it was pictures of the heart muscle and these scrolling waves of electrical activity over the heart muscle and descriptions of running that in um, supercomputers of that time, which 
today would be probably what you could do on a latest version of a, um, a Mac MacBook Pro would probably run the same type of simulations. Oh, yeah. But it was it, it struck me as a very interesting area of um, applying com- skills in a completely different way and and reconstru- it was he was reconstructing tissues using MRI and then running simulations within those reconstructed tissues using equations which represented each cell. So I, I, I applied for this as a, as a course, and I was kind of offered it as a combined, I applied for a PhD, I was offered it as a combined master's and PhD, so a master's in bioinformatics, which is the area I was interested in, computational biology, and then this PhD in, in computational physiology. It's kind of the area that you might now call digital twins, and kind of physics-based digital twins rather than AI-based digital twins. Right. Area. Yeah, a lot of that sounds very advanced for the time, like especially like, MRI, MRI imaging, and then like running the simulation on, I guess, data combined from that and other data. I think that sounds, that sounds pretty exciting. Yeah, so it, it was interesting. So it was, it's the stage where these things were still run on um, clusters of, um, of um, PCs together and visualization still on, on kind of sun visualization stations. And right. I worked in this field for about six, seven years, and towards the end of the last two years was the time where the um, GPT simulations, sorry, not GPT, sorry, um, the graphics um, um, simulations on on graphics cards was coming in. So instead of running simulations on CPUs, it was running um, simulations on on GPUs. And this was quite a big transition of of the ability to run simulations much faster. And at about the same time, uh, much more statistical approaches. So the approaches when I was working in this area were much more mathematical and um, physics-based. And then mm-hmm. um, this transition came in in about the last two years I was in this field of, of um, deep learning methods, but also um, approaches which were more similar to the approaches used within what became, you know, what became the kind of explosion in AI. So you, you could describe the area that I did my PhD in as AI, but it's not the main, what people think of the main area of deep learning neural networks, but it overlapped a little bit yeah i think that was like i, I kind of like I, I took part in that like in those dinosaur times of ai too when it still was just like statistical like a statistical approach but later got called machine learning and now it has all sorts of like fancy names but i think those were that those were those were different times and when, when it just was like a, a a niche thing to do like one of many approaches to do to model things i think that was well very interesting, just as an anecdote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then you did, um, well, the master's degree and PhD you mentioned. So what, what happened What happened next? Like, I, I mean, like, it's really interesting because right now you're in academia again, obviously, as a professor. So, and then you were in academia, at least two, like for your PhD, like doing research. Um, so what, what made you go to, to the industry in, in between, like Biotronic and Ada? Um, so in between, I, I kind of moved to France to a research institute there, and I was doing similar work and um, a lot of work with um, with human clinicians. And then, I, I kind of for, for family reasons, I, I, I decided to move to Germany. My wife's from Germany; right. it made sense to to be based in Berlin. And I um, I got a job in a research institute in Berlin, and it was kind of similar area, but it um, it was on single cell modeling. So it's all the the same I described of the electrical activity of the heart. But it was very much based on the, the single cardiomyocyte and waves of calcium and and modeling every protein in, in the cell. And this, it, you, you kind of in the academic world, you're very dependent on network. 
And though it was really interesting moving to Berlin, and I, I really love Berlin, I didn't have the language. I had to learn German, so I, I could do this discussion in German. I, I do speak German badly, but to communicate. Wow. Um, yeah. Fluently to communicate, but you know, clearly not, not um, at a mother tongue level. And I, um, but I had to learn at that stage. And I also, I was separated from my network in many ways. I I'd switched fields slightly. So it may sound to the external person as this was the same field. It was really a quite different field. And it, um, and also when you're working as a postdoc, so I had always had research funding before. And then I was a kind of, I, I, I had a tiny amount of research funding. I was effectively within a, within a group of a professor. You're, you're kind of on this um, stopwatch is running. Or like certainly right. at that stage, I, I I had my own funding at a large grant from the grant from the Medical Research Council in the UK, at a grant from the European Union in France, and then I kind of felt I don't have my own funding. The clock is ticking. The projects were tough, and um, I I also kind of I think they were slightly not. That was at the stage where the real AI side was starting to kick off, and the projects weren't quite within that. And my feeling was, they, you know, what am I going to do next with this? Am I going to get a permanent position in academia? And it's a people, it's a situation. Lots of people, um, postdocs feel this when they're working within an academia position, but they're in a fixed term position. They've got children, and you're kind of thinking, what will I actually do next? And mm-hmm. at that stage, I thought, okay, um, I have really diverse skills. I I've worked in veterinary practice. I've worked in project work. I know I like project work. And actually, many of my skills might be more suited to industry. And I was kind of very enthusiastically applying both to pharma um, industry in Germany and to um, um, more so to pharma. And then I I started seeing device companies and I applied to some device companies. And then I got a position um, that was actually in a cardiac company. So it was using the the same type of underlying physiology, the cardiac activation the cardiac, you know, the ECG is all the fundamental basis on which pacemakers are working, reacting to and treating, and also internal defibrillators are working and reacting and pacing. And of course, cardiac monitors are working on. So I transitioned from a postdoc in that area and a research fellow in that area to working within the regulation area, but in the specific area of clinical evaluation, which um, I think you know quite well in the mm-hmm. um under the medical device regulations that had come in, there was a greater requirement for companies to really describe how their devices are actually working, whether they are providing, whether they actually are working well enough, whether there's sufficient evidence, whether studies have been done to evaluate this, to integrate it with risk assessment, to explore what needs to be done next, what studies need to be done next. Yeah. yeah I worked with Biotronic, which is a Berlin long-standing company, and it had... Um, invested very heavily in, in setting up for the requirements of these new, new regulations and, and took it very seriously. And actually, we're the first in the world to get um, a, a, a CE certificate, you know, CE mark under the new medical device regulations. Shortly yeah. after, actually. For, for a class three device too, I remember, or was that? Um, uh... I, I don't know if they were the first for a class um, three, but they were certainly the first for um, for a class two A or two B. They may also right. be the first for a class. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really impressive. I mean, I still know companies uh, which still haven't got their CE mark under the MDR, so so they were definitely like ahead of the ahead of the field there. Yeah, and I, I like I mean, a small part within the team that would have worked towards that, so I wouldn't certainly take that as a as a personal achievement. But um, I yeah, did it in my way in in terms of a very large company. 
within very sure. large companies, it's always a small packet of the work you're doing yourself. Yeah. Maybe like thinking about, uh, I guess like going like, like stopping the discussion topic wise or pausing it at this stage and just thinking about your master's degree and PhD. So you managed to, well, join, join an, a company in the industry, Biotronic. Um, now if you would, if, if other doctors or vets who are still in clinical practice would now ask you, well, uh, was that master's degree and PhD, um, was that essential in landing the industry job or was it kind of like a, a nice, um, a nice thing on the side where you got like exposed to a new field and did some research in a PhD, but you could have got your industry job with that too. So another question is if someone now walks up to you and says like, I want to get out of clinical practice, would you recommend doing like a master's degree like you did in PhD? Um, so it's a difficult question. So I, 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 I thought about this a little bit. I think about it a lot. Generally, so as a professor, I um, supervise master students and I supervise PhDs and I'm involved in teaching or will be in the future and teaching master's programs. So I kind of, as a professor, have to say absolutely yes. It would be yeah. um, um, kind of the wrong answer from the future success of universities to say no, a, a PhD or a master's is not the right choice. But I, I think it can be a very, very useful step. And a lot of people talk about it in companies reaching a, a glass ceiling. So that can be if they're starting with a bachelor degree or even a bachelor plus a master's these days. Like everybody knows that now a bachelor plus master's is equal to what a bachelor's was 20 years ago. There's a mm -hmm. increasing expectation. Um, but certainly people without a PhD can describe themselves as reaching a glass ceiling. And I think that also applies to clinicians. So not everybody does. Clearly, some people never reach that glass ceiling. They shoot right through it and they they reach very, very senior roles in companies. And mm -hmm. that's within larger companies or within even you know, scale up companies. And then there's obviously the route that you've taken, which is the entrepreneurship route. Yeah. And, and we all kind of know the stories of, you know, um, you know, Bill Gates or, you know, Steve Jobs, probably, or um, Zuckerberg or pretty much anybody else you can think of an example you know they start the course in in Stanford or in Yale but they never you know they they quit halfway through the bachelor's course and set up a startup from their garage and then you know um, it becomes a, a company with a trillion dollar value etc so so it, be very cautious about saying the only route is to do uh, um, uh, your medical degree or if it be a veterinary degree or dental degree in terms of the medical field and then um, and then start clinical practice or even before start clinical practice say no i want to jump out of that and i need to therefore do a, a master's a phd in that linear route and then find a job i would suggest so i, I very much like the doctor med route i don't know if you've done a doctor med yeah did yeah but um if you can find a really good doctor med course and i don't think they're all really good so i think um it's a no, definitely not <laughs> But, but there are, um, and maybe finding a, a supervisor who's not purely medical, that it'd be quite interesting to find a doctor med course where you're doing that together with somebody within informatics, um, AI, so obviously a, a topical area, but even aspects like usability, usability engineering, human mm -hmm. factors, and finding, I would say, I would suggest finding a, a multi-skill, multidisciplinary doctor med course in whatever the area that you're passionate about. It could even be health economics. Um, if you go to 
purely a medical school and you can have another doctor met on a list and they have to find another project that might be per- it might be the perfect project but it might not be we spent a lot of time on, on choosing the professor choosing the group and designing your own in many ways designing your own project or going with ideas for projects looking in the literature of what the and that could be a really useful route and for a, do- mm-hmm. for a doctor it's probably a better route than a, doing a phd you could always do a phd after you do the doctor med if, if it was relevant within the work you're doing but it's kind of a luxury within the doc- doctor position within germany to have that doctor med now, if anybody's listening yeah. outside germany or it's certainly in, in uk i don't know about the us they may not have that option um, so maybe like it might be worth you describing what a doctor med briefly is yeah. <laughs> than me, but. it's a good point yeah so yeah, it's actually not not trivial to describe, right? So, like the the German education system in itself, it doesn't really have PhDs. It only has like doctorate degrees. Like, if you're looking purely at the German system, like by now, of course, in German universities, you can also do a PhD because they um, adapted that from, I guess, the English system or some other system. But like purely, the German system has doctorate theses. So, I guess, like I don't know, fifty years ago, like if you wanted to do something like in addition to your studies, like research work, um, you would do a doctorate degree, and that's still possible and in, in all fields essentially and that includes medicine and maybe like in medicine the difference to other doctorate degrees is well firstly you can do it in a much shorter uh, in much in a much shorter time frame and unfortunately it's like it's like scientifically often it can be like much less rigorous you can do like a doctor med degree in like one year or so versus others might be more comparable to phds where you do like a three to five year or even longer um, degree still i think the very interesting perspective from from a medical student's side is you get the opportunity to be exposed to research and i think that's really what you were like focusing on like you get to select like a research group you um select like the topic you're doing research on and what you'll be doing on and if you want to like publish it in a journal and essentially just get like some experience as as a researcher so you pretty much have two choices right like one choice is go down the crappy crappy doctor route like where you do like a doctor med degree and you can even do it in six months which is which you can barely describe as research where you maybe just go through some excel spreadsheets and kind of have to try to find some like correlation between two things like maybe looking for i don't know what prior diseases do colon cancer patients maybe have like do we find a new correlation here which might not be extremely useful but something you can just barely write up so that would be like a six month uh, doctor med degree whereas like a longer degree maybe one to two years would be really doing like new original research like where you would uh, try to work on a like well new problem um i at the time did uh it was based on like mri so that that actually got me started in coding, which is a whole other story, which would like make me go on for one hour now. But <laughs> but like uh, our, our lab actually was really really cool, and what you said reminded me a lot about that. Like my supervisor was a very interesting person. He ha- had studied both medicine and law, actually. Interestingly, one of very few people, and um, he was also like quite t- technically minded, like not a coder, but like quite good understanding of like well mris and imaging that sort of stuff and what we essentially did is we had mri images of uh, brain tumor patients with glioblastoma a very aggressive brain tumor and we tried to find new ways of like post-processing those for example finding trying to find the regions where the tumor might grow into if um 
like trying to predict essentially whether the tumor is going to grow next. And like a lot of that was extremely, extremely interesting. Like um, for me as a, the coding experience was also interesting. You got all that like data lying around and you were literally the only person working on it because there aren't many software developers in a hospital. So, um, and we found out a lot of very interesting things. So it was, uh, it was a, yeah, it was time well spent for sure. Like, I, I guess I was really lucky that I did many things right which you just like mentioned like selecting like a good group i got i just got very lucky there with my supervisor selecting like an interesting topic that was certainly interesting and got me like started on coding and everything so um yeah long long story but uh i, I think the implementation you, you mentioned some of the the critical aspects so so you can be lucky with selecting a good group or you can try and locate one and try and create the project for yourself the critical question is is delivering value within the project. And I think that applies whether it's six months or two years. And that can be really tough. So if you're given a project which makes no sense, you kind of have to guard against that in advance. You have to really think about what you will actually be doing within the project. Can you deliver value within the project? And then once you start the project, making sure you do, do, deliver value. And that can be in the coding direction. So I know quite a lot of other doctors that have gone in the coding direction. And increasingly, mm-hmm. like, there's the kind of no-code coding direction, and there's coding which is easier than some of the coding of like C++ coding that I used to do when I was um, yeah. um, um, kind of in some of my undergraduate and postgraduate work. That there's, um, you know, Python is a lot more straightforward than C++, and there's also, you know, the no-code approaches. So there, that, that it could be in that direction, but it could be in something which doesn't involve, you know, learning coding if that's not your area, but it's finding where you can deliver value what is the, the thing that you're passionate about within, let's let's say if it's a digital health direction, but it's not necessarily digital health, or maybe molecular medicine and pharma interaction with aspects of AI and, and, and you know um, everything that's digital to some extent these days. It may be patient management. It may be a specific disease. But if you can bring, make sure you're bringing some value and make sure you're bringing an output from the project, which is not just having the doctor med title. It's is it an open source project you've developed in it, if it's coding? Is it a research paper that you've published? Is it at least something you've put out as a preprint? It can, it's not guaranteed, but if you take the attitude of planning for it, it's much more likely to happen than it didn't. Uh, right. look, yeah, looking back at my own masters, there were things that I kind of th- things that I produced which were publishable, and I didn't push them quite enough to publish them. Um, I actually did one um, in, in this stage. It wasn't coding exactly, but it was using... Um, protein structure prediction tools mm. it's maybe a slight too much of an anecdote but it was there was this really in, in kind of veterinary virology and human virology world there was this really interesting um, hypothesis which was out there which was published in some of the top virology journals and that was in this this major disease in in um, pigs and a virus that can also cause disease in humans this evolutionary theory that it had merged together from two genomes from from a um uh flies that it came from basically tomato and a combination of a animal virus Uh concept that were like aphids and flies you know biting flies that were biting the plants like the tomato plants and also biting animals and then they had the in the in their proboscis they had the two viruses together and they merged together and formed this completely new virus of animal and plant origin and it was kind of an interesting theory at this time in in virology Not, not absolutely the center of the scene, but it was quite interesting. And within my um, master's thesis, I kind of did protein structure modeling, and I kind of showed this didn't make any sense. 
Partly because databases have become more filled up since with more sequences, you could kind of see there were intermediary steps, which mean that this theory made no sense. And I wrote a brief paper on this, um, kind of showing that this other idea of plant animal viral origin from insects didn't make sense. And I, I showed it to a few people and they said, oh, that's interesting. We need to make it bigger as a paper. We need to bring in more results and so on. And I never quite pushed the public publishing it, but then kind of two or three years later, exactly the same thing appeared in the literature, same information, right. the same thing. So it would have been quite a nice paper. Mm -hmm. um, I, I published things for my bachelor's thesis, which are, you know, um, still some of my most cited papers, you know, I was a co-author, but again, it's a question of delivering value, working with your supervisor to make sure that you're delivering value to get an output. And that can be a paper. It can be a open source project. It could be some other kind of output, but it's not a question of just doing it to learn the research method. Really, you should be doing it to learn the research method and produce an output because it is a piece of relevant work. Even if it's a thesis output, we are then doing some external use of that thesis. Um, mm -hmm. There's a valuable message which you're communicating, be it via podcasts or be it, be it via future activities. But it's not a, a piece of work that you just kind of shelve and say, well, now I've experienced the research method. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's such a good point, and I think many many researchers could maybe like should um, take that into account. Like I think like sometimes when I read the papers, I'm like, I mean, yeah, it's published, but I'm not sure if this paper really is delivering a lot of value. It's just like it's just like the bare minimum what you can publish. But yeah, and it's a good point to also include open source projects there because those often like in many cases deliver value. Had some guests on the podcast here who had some open source projects published so that's that's really cool moving forward so because of our our limited time and aspects which i really would love to talk about with you are like well what you do right now obviously you're a, a professor for regulatory science and i suppose most listeners won't immediately be able to understand <clears throat> what what is regulatory science so feel free to explain like what, what the hell is regulatory science um okay so i'll um, it's, it's kind of useful to start from a definition of regulatory affairs. So regulatory affairs, we touched on a little bit already in this podcast. It's the area within a company, let's say a medical device company, for the sake of simplicity, and it goes broader than that. So it could be in pharma, but let's stick to medical devices. Regulatory affairs is the function within that company, which makes sure, which makes sure that the device is developed according to the requirements you could say in a very dry way, you could say that it, it works within the product development process in a collaborative aspect to develop a product which delivers the best value for the user. So, so for me, regulatory affairs is not really different from product thinking. Being a product-centered company in medical device area is actually being a regulatory affairs-centered company and not in a negative way. So regulatory regula regulation, we maybe touch on this later, gets a very bad name. But that, that, yeah. that job is, is regulatory affairs. Regulatory science is, is kind of a little bit more of a, a meta consideration of whether the, um, what are the regulations, what are the new regulations are developing, what should they be? Are they working? What could we learn from other fields? Are critical aspects? What data is there? And a critical question is what's coming along in the pipeline? So what needs to be regulated? Yeah. So if there are completely new technologies that were never envisaged before, let's say, you know, I'll probably mention things more which are already in the pipeline, but um, whole genome sequencing, prediction of disease on the basis of whole genome sequencing or even of, um, 
of uh, not whole genome sequencing, but but sub parts of the genome sequencing. These are um, are things that have come along the pipeline, and often they've, they've kind of reached the regulatory world, and the regulatory world and the laws have no idea how to react to them. And regulatory science is is partly preparing for what's coming along, and it may be preparing sometimes to say that that can't come along, or that needs to come along in a very different way, or it may say, well, actually, that should come along, but there are certain requirements in terms of quality and checks, but we need to adapt and actually change the laws to do that. So the, the work involves um, aspects of data science, aspects of working in development projects, aspects of political and policy work, um, interacting with policy, commenting on policy um, within it. And mm-hmm. maybe it's kind of a, a point I always slightly make that in my perspective, if regulatory affairs is done right within a company or even within a consultancy working for a company, it has aspects of regulatory science to it. Uh, in the way that I mean there's an aspect of scientific thinking and very intelligent thinking on developing functional, helpful, long-term, or even just sensible regulatory strategies within a company for a set of products. So I don't take the perspective that it's which of your brain activity and you, that in, within regulatory affairs, and you kind of read off the rules, and then you say to the coders and the the the, um, the graphic designers and the interface engineers, regulations say no, regulations say no. Okay, now regulations say yes. It's an intelligent process within a company. So I think that the, the scientific thinking within regulatory affairs makes sense even on a single company or a single consultancy level. Interesting. And talking about so. If, if I understand correctly, you have like at least these two aspects, like, okay, uh, what, what are the current regulations doing? Like, are they working? And how do we regulate new things? Focusing on the first thing first, maybe, do we, do we even know if our regulation right now is working for, for medical devices? Or, because I always think like, or maybe I should definitely give more context here is sometimes I'm not sure if it's this like correlation versus causation thing. So what we essentially did, like with the transition to the MDR, which you mentioned earlier, which I should have explained at that time, is like the, the regulations for medical devices changed. They became, well, in simplified terms, more stricter. Like you need more clinical data, you need a whole lot more um, documentation um, to bring medical devices to market. For example, medical devices are, well, cardiac pacemakers, which is an example for an implant you gave, or even just medical software like like Ada, like a symptom um, symptom tester app where you would enter your symptoms and get like a suggested diagnosis, maybe even with a recommendation to go to a hospital. So those are medical devices. Now, the regulation got stricter and people have to do way more stuff. And I suppose one of the inputs for making the regulation stricter was, well, that maybe patients were getting hurt or like manufacturers were messaging the authorities which they have to do that they had like a um like like a like an event where a patient might have gotten hurt because there was like some sort of malfunction with the device for example a software having like a bug and worst case yeah a patient being for example exposed to radiation um so now now we have the effect that we have all this regulation and many small companies are struggling to fulfill it because they maybe don't have a dedicated regulatory team like Biotronic did and they don't have the resources to say like, hey, okay, we have these 10 or 20 new people dealing with the new regulations. Maybe there's only one person and the person is already doing other other tasks too. 
So now we maybe have this weird secondary effect that only large companies are able to bring devices to market. And I think having seen a few large companies, they tend to be usually very, very risk averse. That, that's kind of inherent to many large companies. So maybe the devices now end up being much safer, but not as a direct effect of the regulation, more of a, like a side effect of the regulation, like that we kind of like pushed out all the small companies, which is my pet theory for which I have absolutely no proof. So, so what's, what's your opinion on that? It, it, it's something I think about quite a lot. Like it's something we actually debated and discussed before when, when um, we were in ADA. I don't know if you remember, but it's effectively the same question as we, we discussed. And I don't think we at that stage came up to a, um, a conclusion on it. I published a paper on this quite recently, um, and it was about um, um, with colleagues who had interacted with um, in the UK, and they have been involved in a, in a program in the UK about designing the new medical device regulation in the UK, and it was um, involved in, in kind of um, consultations and um, focus groups we'd done with the regulator in the UK and with a lot of UK industry, and we, we wrote that up as a paper, um, and it's actually discussing these kind of feedback loops in regulation. And there's, there's an image that I got a graphic designer to actually draw from a, a sketch that I've made of a of a, a set of weighing scales, and um, and these weighing scales have overregulation on one side and underregulation on the other, and the um, they're they're in a feedback loop. So when the weighing scales goes down too much on one side, it, it pushes on a reservoir. So this is drawn as a three D figure, and it's actually really beautifully drawn. And it pushes down on the on a reservoir, and that causes liquid or water to be filled into the scale on the other side so it's a typical feedback loop and mm -hmm. on the on the overregulation side so on the push for more regulation side so that the you probably remember the implant files um which were um you know part of the um international consortium of investigative journalists um so guardian group Süddeutsche zeitung and they published, um, I can't remember in, in the exact year, but a whole series of reports about the problems associated with implant devices specifically. Uh, and right. one of the devices was metal-on-metal metal hip implants. And these were um, a new product that had been developed. There were other products on the market, um, you know, metal-on-plastic effectively. And these worked reasonably well. It was of some um, side effects, but um, it was the normal, the state of the art. And then this new idea came along from from well-thinking engineers. You know, expect, you know, there would be advantages of this approach, maybe longer-lasting. Very well-meaning people who developed it. It was released onto the market, and it um, the metal on metal resulted in effectively metal filings in the joints and very very bad complications for people. And it resulted in obviously articles in the newspapers and court cases, and many of those court cases were lost, not all of them, but many of them, and obviously concern from the public. You know. Um, why, how can this happen? How can it be that there are hip implants for many years that work quite well, but they give me this one, which causes me this problem? And that was, a, you know, it's an innovation. There was reasons that they thought this is a good innovation to bring in, and that that causes uh, that causes more water to enter one side of this balance in yeah. the newspapers. Now, it it was associated with the introduction of the MD um, medical device regulation. It wasn't the only thing, but this kind of thinking over many years, there have been concerns amongst surgeons in heart valves in many types of implants that really some of these things work quite well, but some of them don't. Having a CE mark actually doesn't tell you either way. And there's often not literature. I, as a surgeon, do not know which is good and which is bad. Is that actually acceptable? Would it not make more sense? There was some kind of mark on it, which was associated with how well it would work or not. And that caused the, the balance to go very much in this direction 
of what we talked about in regulation with tougher rules, really quite tough rules, really quite tough rules are, are challenging rules for startups where they don't have the specialist regulatory team. They don't have a team of, you know, 30 people, um, 20 people who can know them all, study them all, read all of the associated standards and implement them all. And <clears throat> the feedback loop is quite interesting. So what's the other side of the feedback loop? There is actually a pushback against this side of regulation. It's actually quite interesting within the Brexit debate from the UK. A lot of the mm-hmm. main argument for, for for Brexit was from all industry saying we're overregulated and the public saying we're overregulated. They actually bought this message. So, so in my perspective, there is actually another side of this feedback loop. And what actually happened with the medical device regulation, you'll also have seen, you know, you've been very much aware of the coverage in all of the German newspapers, you know, Bild Zeitung. So Bild newspaper covered it, the Süddeutsche Zeitung again. Every newspaper, Die Zeit, covered the absence of having enough medical devices on the market. And that's, um, and then, as you're, you're aware, the medical device regulations, had, you know, that were, were ex- there was an extension in the period of time that people have adapt- to adapt to them. And this is this really, really slow feedback loop. But it yeah. operates over years and it operates through this kind of political media um, interactions with companies, with the, the political system in a really slow fashion over years. And your, your question kind of goes back to, do we know it works? What's the evidence base? In my, in my diagram, in the middle pillar, there's kind of this answer, you know, regulatory science, evidence-based regulation, better regulation, um, uh, feedback, you know, feedback loops, um, you know, post, short loops of post-market surveillance. Um, there, there are these um, approaches you can use to actually see if the regulation's working. They're, they're very difficult, though. They're really, really hard. There are groups publishing. Um, you know, I, I haven't published anything in the you know, database analysis yet, but I'm interacting with some groups that are. There are attempts to look in the data and actually say, if you make an ad- intervention, what is the effect of the intervention? But it's really hard mm-hmm. because it's not being. It's very hard to do on the basis of a of a control study. You know, intervention sure. versus not intervention group. Yeah, you can do that. So there's a re- really interesting um, paper which you may have um, or um, um, program from the US um, of actually having regulatory sandboxes, and then they pick certain companies. So within the digital health space, they picked eight companies, and then they observe them through a pr- special process, and they introduce new regulation within the sandbox, and and they're quite interesting conclusions, but they were not simple conclusions. You, for one thing, you distort the market. You kind of say, well, we're going to have a, um, a survey, you know, we're going to have a competition effectively, but it's not really an open competition. And certain companies apply, and, and most of them were the really big companies, you know, the, the big names linked to, you know, some of these trillion, um, you know, dollar value co- um, companies and some smaller companies. But then they're in a situation where they've got a special interaction with the regulator. And then the other startups are kind of outside that. And there's been a, a number of programs also to suggest that, um, the um, looking at um, similar programs within the UK, so so sandboxes and also a related activity, which is early approval, so full approval for um, on market approval for certain high risk devices or really high need devices. So it's so, so high risk is the wrong word. Orphan diseases where there's a there's a there's um, there's a no treatment available, or else the technology is transformational. There's a potential for it to transform the healthcare system. And there, the idea, and it's not actually been implemented by the UK government yet, they've put it on hold, is that the regulator is kind of watching it on the market really closely. So you put yeah. it out there early, you, you increase its growth, you monitor from the regulator sitting over your shoulder really closely. That that was a step too far for the UK approach at the moment, but it's an idea of how you could do that. Otherwise, 
the the data is really tough because to, to try and pick out the signal. So it tends to, I mean, a very long answer to a question, it tends to go on the basis of what would be a logical approach. And I can see your argument. You set out a logical approach, which is so detailed logical that it's almost impossible to comply with. For a, mm-hmm. and it has the effect of cutting agility and innovation out of the market. But it does make some sense, even without the evidence base, to say, if you're setting out a clear plan of developing this thing, and you have structured arguments and structured discussion, and you have to think about this internally in your company, and you have to look at the data, and you have to look at the results, and you have to make those available externally, even if there's not that evidence loop, it is an, a, a point that would make quite a lot of sense to any rational person, including the patient looking at it. The patient who would say, was this ever tested? Did they ever look at the first patients to see how they did? Did they track how many patients before it got to the stage there were tens, tens of thousands of patients with the same problem? Well, quite often they did, but they didn't react because there was a commercial incentive not to react or quite often they yeah. didn't look. So, so that's my kind of my slightly defensive and very long answer to your question. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good point. And I mean, my takeaway from that would be it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's a very hard problem. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. And we have, we have many blind spots there, but nonetheless, really interesting things you mentioned um now um, which, which is which is a good transition like now we have as an example now we have um llms like large language models kind of like entering the picture just recently a few months ago with chat gpt among among others and of course people are like wondering like okay what happens if this gets applied to healthcare so what would your thoughts be on that? Like, also, we have the EU AI regulation coming up, which I personally am not an expert for, so I don't have much idea about that. But how how do you see that progressing? Which is like a very open question, like LLMs and AI in healthcare. So, so I think it's one of the biggest questions, and it's a fascinating question. Um, you you may have seen that Sam Altman was um, speaking in in Germany a couple of, um, two weeks ago from the yeah. University of München on exactly this theme of regulation. AI Act and European approach, and actually kind of said, well, um, commenting on the AI Act and commenting on the AI Act was specifically being delayed going through the European Parliament with new provisions being written in for um, general AI models and foundation AI models, foundation AI models, including large language models. So they've specifically written in in the drafting stages when it's still going through the Parliament provisions for that. And Sam Altman, the, the CEO of OpenAI, was reacting to this and effectively saying, there's some things we're very concerned about in this regulation, and if it comes to it, we'll just switch off entirety of um, you know GPT for European market. And companies do this. You know, um, Google have reacted similarly, um, or certainly Facebook have reacted similarly in, in Australia to certain introduction, not in the health space, but a certain certain requirements yeah. in data protection. And um, Italy temporarily switched off um, um, GPT. Um, for access or, you know, chat GPT access within Italy over a period of time when they were concerned about certain aspects of um, data um, privacy. It's one of the hottest themes. Um, the um, CEO of um, Google was writing about it in the Financial Times three weeks ago. Um, Sam Altman, CEO of OpenAI, was speaking in Congress and answering questions in Congress about it. The um, Google, Microsoft, um, OpenAI are very, very vocal on this theme at the moment. OpenAI have launched a crowdsourced approach to creating regulation. They're funding 100,000 euro grants for people who want to actually suggest, you know, crowdsourcing approaches for the public to say what the regulation should be. Really interesting mm-hmm. that the regulated want to create the regulation. It's a very, very hot topic. 
I have, a, I have a, a paper that's been accepted in a, in a major journal discussing these themes. So I'm working quite deep in them at the moment. I'm very, very interested in them. I don't think there are any easy answers. And the, the paper that, that um, maybe it may appear about the same time as this podcast, depending on when you do the post-processing and taking like, my notifications right. coming through on my computer and stuff, um, it, it may appear about the same time, but discusses kind of the, the challenges, the huge challenges if you want to have a large language model approved. There are phenomenally large challenges. So there are phenomenally large promise, I would say, as well. So that people are a little bit amazed about the potential. And some people are amazed about the risks as well. So you, you've yeah. uh, effective, effectively uh, an infinite range of possible inputs. It's not like a, a standard medical device where you, as a medical device manufacturer, limit the inputs. You're in a situation where the user can type anything. And you have an almost infinite range of outputs. That, now, of course, they develop large language models through a, a constraint process with, um, you know, it's um, partially supervised. It's nearly not quite clear to what extent it's supervised, what extent it's actually you know, supervised um, uh, machine learning, to what extent it's actually fully manual introduction of constraints. But both of those things together to try and take out some, you know, harmful outputs, hallucinated outputs. This is a kind of an engineering problem which is ongoing, but you still effectively have the situation of, infinite inputs, infinite outputs, almost impossible to test in a, in a standard software verification process because you're, are you really sampling that range of inputs and range of outputs enough? And what you get into quite soon into quite philosophical arguments, you know, what, um, which are normal, um, to some extent, normal risk benefit arguments within medical device approval. What proportion of hallucinated outputs might be acceptable? What degree of risk from hallucinated outputs what percentage of patient harm versus percentage of patient benefit? It's a very, very challenging question. L let's say the, um, the there's a lot still being written in the regulation of AI, but what is being written and being created as standards goes in the direction of explainability, mm -hmm. which is a huge problem also from large language models. They, they are not... They are very, very challenging to explain. So neural networks, um, um, deep learning approaches can be very challenging to explain, but there are better approaches there for trying to explain to the user why it gives the answer. If you go to um, you know, GPT 3.5 and, and probably GPT 4 is the same, and you say to the, to, to the um, ex explanation to the clinician of why it's given a particular output, let's say if this is built into a decision support system for clinicians, the clinician inputs the electronic health record, as you already can in certain tools that are on the market, arguably illegally, you know, um, yeah. upload an electronic health record um, and ask what is the possible, what are the possible diagnoses for these patients, what is the treatment plan? So you, I'm sure you're aware of Glass.ai, which is a tool which says it's not for treating patients, you know, it's only for the, um, the education of doctors and exploring their own clinical hypothesis building. Click yes, I understand that. Then you have an interface, upload an electronic health record, give me a series of diagnosis, give me a, a therapeutic plan. Um, the, the, if you explain to the, if you had the explanation that goes alongside the results, it would say in every case, well, um, this is a, um, a large language model, say GPT-4, those are now running on. It's been trained on perhaps trillions of um, sub parts of text on the internet of tokens. Um, in a very large neural net, a lot of the material came from Reddit, um, chats, 
a lot of the material came just from the open internet. There's a, obviously medical material in there somehow in the mix. We're not really quantified how it's in the mix. And we give you an answer which is based on a probabilistic approach of the most likely answer, but we don't actually give you the most likely answer because that doesn't work very well for a chat dialogue model. It's the um, 90% most likely answer. Why is it the 90% most likely answer? Sort of the GPT um, 3.5, it was this way. It's because that works magically, it empirically has been shown to work quite well of creating a interesting dialogue. And um, and the um, is there any underlying model that the information is correct? No. So it, it's a very, very hard from an explainability process. It's very, very hard from a source of evidence. So the, the other thing that the AI, the AI Act in more general non-medical requirements has written in is that the people who created the content need to be credited for the content. And that's very challenging, right. but just even from an evidence perspective, the, the clinical study that one might cite to say it works is, is we tried this out with a number of inputs from a medical exam, which were very um, predefined, in some cases previously on the internet, and we got out an answer, which was a pass grade for the exam. It's not really a validation. It's not kind of any specific to your specific problem or the way you asked your question. So it's an immensely challenging area. And I've probably talked a lot about it, but it's a, this, is a, this is the gist of the, the, the paper that I have um, yeah. that's about to come out. But maybe you have specific questions which relate to that. It's, but, but I have to say, it's, my answer is not a never, never, never. And it's not a totally impossible. It's the same kind of approaches need to go in to the validation and getting approval of those as devices that go into any other device. But there's a very big uphill challenge to the to the answering any of those questions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I think the the thing which which I thought was really interesting, you mentioned initially the like infinite number of inputs and infinite number of outputs, like a thought which I had spontaneously was like, yeah, why just don't, why don't just like limit the outputs, right? You could like put the large language model, and that's actually the example you gave the most recently, put it into like, kind of like a black box, I guess regulators would call it that, like code wise, you would just take the output and, and pass the text and just say, okay, Use it as a classification model, for example. So it gets a patient record. It should come up with, I don't know, um, maybe like whether to do um, diagnostic procedure A, B, or C, and then it just outputs A, B, or C, and then you can test it very well or do a risk assessment very well, essentially, because you know, well, there are only these three possible outputs. I don't really know the probability of those outputs, but in my risk assessment, I could kind of just say like, yeah, what if it like chooses wrongly each time? And if I use it for, say, like a very low risk context, like, hmm, what would a low risk context be? But something like, I mean, like in, in, in the guidance documents, for example, like, um, like these, uh, the, the typical class one example is this is this app for period tracking um, uh, in the guidance documents and and like if you would like build a large language model into that, for example, to I don't know like predict and this is unfortunately I don't have a smart example this morning, but like to to predict if or to kind of only like give a notification if the woman is like if generally like the woman is adhering to the proposed schedule or not. Again, extremely bad example, but then I feel like you could at least, you would have a viable way of bringing it to market because you could say, okay, like the output is only, okay, notification sh is shown or no notification is shown. We might not know the exact probabilities, but assuming it goes, it's it's wrong every time, like the woman, the risk would be a woman gets pregnant, for example, even though she don't, doesn't want to. So I, I think it's... Um... A good point. So some, so if I understand it correctly, some kind of um, multi-layered approach 
Exactly, so yeah. Multi-model approach and a multi-model approach where you're focusing on the output side. So I, so I think most things will go in this direction. And I think it partially answers the question. And how well it answers the question depends a lot on the detail of how that's implemented. There's a big split between the US approach to this and the EU approach to this. And I think this will be kind of the news of the next um, five to 10 years of the field. So in it, already um, GPT-4, you know, a lot of the your listeners to this podcast will already realize this, and you'll really realize this that within um, the within three weeks of the launch of GPT four, um, but well, after the launch of G- GPT three point five, Microsoft bought a, a very large holding in uh, AI. Yeah. Um, after launch of GPT, sorry for the notifications. Sorry. Um, um, after the launch of GPT four, Nuance which is the um, medical dialogue transcription automation tool, which is absolutely huge. Microsoft had previously bought for $19 billion. They la- um, uh, uh, shortly after they launched GPT-4, they, launched, uh, they, they announced the integration of um, GPT-4 within the, the Dragon software, their main transcription software. Within right. a number of weeks later, Epic, um, the 34% market holder of electronic health record systems, had announced exploring the integration of GPT-4 within the Epic system, so on an exploratory level. And um, within a number of weeks later, Google announced um, a large number of partnerships with um, clinical partners exploring the integration also with electronic health records. So th- this is moving at a pace and the exact use cases and this layer of multi-level model checking and the layer of the precise role within medicine is yet to, is yet is kind of filling its way through the system, but it's very different within the US and the um, and the EU. And one reason it's very different within the US and the EU, nobody's really explored the implications of the very different approach the US has to clinical decision support. And this comes down to something called the 21st Century Cures Act. You know, it's an act of US Congress on how the future technology approaches would be regulated. And the FDA, which is the main US regulator, have, have said that if you're, if you're analyzing text, all we're talking about here is, is the large language model side with text inputs and um, we're not talking about the graphic side and um, we're not talking about images we're not talking about signals but those are other areas where obviously um, um, generative ai approaches and foundation models are, are very very relevant but we stick to text if you have a, um, a tool which is processing and giving suggestions based on the electronic health record provided it is explainable provided it is giving the basis of its of its outputs it's saying why it's saying what it did and it's providing evidence for that. And it's providing a range of outputs, a little bit like you suggest. It's not saying take this patient immediately to the emergency room and perform open heart yeah, surgery. Yeah. It's saying it's giving a range of possible output and a range of possible treatment options. And provided you build into it safety mechanisms against automation bias for the clinician so that they're not being led to not think, then it's not a medical device at all. And that's just transformational. It's not a class one medical device. It's not a medical device. And the um, obvious direction of all of the large companies and small companies will be to say, well, we are explaining, we are providing the basis, we're avoiding automation bias, therefore we're not a medical device. And the FDA have a difficult task, but an interesting task of saying, are you really doing those things or are you not? So there will be this testing of where the FDA sets their boundary. The boundary in Europe is a is, um, million miles away from there. You have a medical use case and you're using software and it's in decision support. You're a class 2A device. 
you need a full quality management system. You need to submit it to, you know, in terms of you know all the detail of this, but but submit that, you know, get a notified body, submit this to a notified body, have a review process over six weeks. So what we have is kind of a two orders of magnitude velo- um, velocity difference between development in the US and development in Europe, I would say is potentially happening with the critical interesting decisions on either side of the Atlantic and how the regulators actually enforce. So really, really interesting questions. But in terms of your your, your basic question about layering of models, I, I think at both sides, this will be the, the, the approaches and building in safeguards. And the potential for these tools is is large, but the dangers are also large. You tend to get these very polarized arguments on you know, LinkedIn and probably on Twitter, but I'm not don't use Twitter, um, but they probably going in the side of so one person saying this is transformational, this is great, this is all good, and then somebody else saying this is all bad, it's a disaster, it's not safe, and kind of extreme arguments. In the end, the kind of boring argument is it needs some kind of methodology and system and testing and approach and argument that the approach is actually safe. Maybe it's yeah. just worth like there's a there's a huge cowboy industry around copycat creation of medical tools using gpt so there's so many of them in the market at the moment the the most kind of interesting one to mention is the one from martin Shkreli, which is it, it, you know, there are numerous similar tools but it's kind of interesting it's called dr gupta and it's one of the most egregious examples of not following any due process and it's interesting because you, know, you, you know you probably know he's the guy who went to jail for Kind of hiking prices of um, drugs, um, you know, was um, found guilty for um, inappropriate financial conduct and spent a very large time in jail. And then coming out of jail, it's well, okay, what's my next business adventure? It's starting up a completely non licensed doctor, which is a minimal layer of prompt engineering sitting on top of GPT 4. Um, and it's quite interesting as a tool because when you go into that tool, it asks numerous medical parameters. You know, what are your, you know, do you have, you know, glucose readings, etc. Whole, you know, biochemistry and whole series of informa- series of information, and it feeds into a GP24 engineering with some degree of prompt engineering and, and spits out outputs. There's n- absolutely no security whatsoever in terms of what you're putting in there as blood values, how they go into that engine how they're used in that engine, are they used at all? Are they used appropriately? Are you putting in critical values that could be unsafe? There, there is nobody checking that. And you basically have somebody who spent a very large period in prison for very um, very dubious practice within medicine or pharma saying, well, no, I'm launching this tool. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't have a second chance, incidentally. No, statute is quite clear. I'm legally not allowed to say that, um, that somebody's been to prison, therefore they're a bad person. That's not simple as that. But it's, there's a lot of people creating similar copy to cut tools with no checks. And I'm sympathetic to your point about the need to for entrepreneurship, the need for innovation. These aren't truly new innovations. They're effectively a thousand, if one looked for them, examples coming onto the market of the same thing over and over again. One couldn't really differentiate them. And they're all lacking any quality process whatsoever or any assurity for the user. So it's I, I think there's a there's a middle way to find. And that middle way to find, I think the US is closer to it than the EU on this particular question. But I um there's gonna be very tough questions and decisions that need, need to be made by regulators of when they actually send some letters to people saying, Stop this, um, or you face very large financial penalties. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to review on this because you know as much about it as me. So, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting perspective, and 
I mean, I tend to usually be in the camp of, okay, we're over-regulating um, essentially everything here in Europe, but regarding like AI and large language models, for me personally, I feel like the, the jury is still kind of out. It's, it might be that Europe's approach might turn out to be better simply because we right now, we just don't know to what degree we should be regulating these things or not. Um, but so I wouldn't necessarily say right now, okay, the European approach is bad. I simply don't know and, and we'll see. And your, your points were very, very interesting, especially what stuck with me was like the two orders of magnitude difference in, in development speed, like in the US, the US being faster. I think it'll be very interesting to see the um, the, the progress there. And I mean, one, one trend which I as a software developer already saw was that well, the really good software developers in Germany, they go to the US because that's like where the exciting companies are and where they can work at Google and work on really exciting stuff. Whereas here in Germany, we just don't have that many exciting software companies. And we don't really, I don't really see any companies on the horizon doing similarly great things. So, so that's a bit sad. And I, and I hope that this tendency doesn't, doesn't get worse now in the future that we might be regulating things even more. Now, um, in the interest of time, um, I'll, I'll limit my questions to only one more question because we've already, uh, we're already a bit over my scheduled one hour of time, but it was very interesting nonetheless. So I didn't, I, 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 I was really interested in actually continuing that conversation, but, uh, wrapping up and my final question, which I selected for you is if, if you could, if you go back and so if you could time travel and talk to your past self, who's currently attending uh, veterinary school. And you could um, give some advice to that person on, for example, doing anything differently. Would would you would you do anything differently? Um, so, so if, if if you're kind of allowed to give advice on the basis of hindsight of the development of world um, activities, like I, I was always relatively ahead of the game compared to most people on digital approaches and technological approaches, but of course. Um, having the foresight of the kind of AI and uh, machine learning revolution. So I was almost at that point, but not quite. Um, and those, like I, I had books, which I bought quite early on, which were about machine learning, which I never read. And I, I'm probably reading those and I'm getting involved in that would have been um, from very early and focusing on that would have been a very interesting area to do right back at that time. But I, I don't know if I've got too many regrets. Like I, in some ways, my career has been slower than other people because I've done more different things. So people do comment on it being quite diverse. And I quite like all of the aspects of it. And all of them are daily useful and part of the enjoyment of what I'm doing. And I've got sufficient time to explore what I'm doing at the moment at this stage of my career. So I'm not sure that I would change too much. Like I, I possibly would have been less hard on myself about about kind of changing career direction. So I kind of felt that I shouldn't change career direction. And at that time, like, I think it's still the case within Germany to some extent, and maybe it was definitely in, in, in the UK, there was this kind of thinking when you thought you'd trade for something, therefore you have to do it. And if you don't do it, you're some kind of dilettante and you can't stick it out. Having a different perspective on that, which would be much more the you train for certain areas but you can choose whatever you want to do and apply those skills and being kind of making that decision more easily i probably would have done now but i'm I'm also conscious that it the, the i have a lot of respect for people who work within 
the career, which has this um, of, of, med of vet medicine or veterinary medicine, where they work in this list basis and they deliver that, um, they work in that really hard, stressful environment, dealing with people or dealing with clinical problems, one after the other after the next. And there's nothing wrong with that career direction. So, so if that obviously people who choose to listen to this podcast may be interested in a, another career direction and may be more suited suited to project work and to developmental work than that career, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with that career set. And in the future, it's quite an interesting area. With the we, we touched a lot on large language models, the value of the people who can do that um, caring for people career set will increase and increase. Some of the jobs that will not be re replaced very soon are like one was to list them off. There are lists of you know what should your children study if they want to not be replaced by AI. Top of the list is um, primary school le teacher. Why? Mm -hmm. You like could you replace with an AI a primary school te teacher? Well, you could, but would you want to replace with an AI a primary school teacher? Most parents don't want to and wouldn't want to and wouldn't want that vision of the world. So therefore, primary school teacher is very safe. Could you replace a doctor with an AI? Well, many of the serial repetitive tasks and big data analysis tasks and actually analyzing an entire health record or serial data from a patient from the wearables and predicting their disease, many of those tasks can be done better by AI or will very soon be able to be done better by AI. In terms of the actual interaction with um, the patient, speaking to them about their condition, spending time with the patient, most Patients don't want that job to be replaced, and I actually don't think it would be a benefit to society to replace that. Of course, somebody could build an argument of saying, oh, I'm going to build a robot and I'm going to simulate the human emotion. And I know this really bad JAMA paper from a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, exploring whether, you know, um, based upon Reddit um, feeds, whether doctors or GPT was more sympathetic and very artificially saying GPT was more sympathetic. It doesn't really address this point. Mm -hmm. Mostly people want to interact with people, not that people want to be sick, but they will in their journey for their health want to interact with people. And that's a good thing. And I think we need to redesign our health systems such that it actually brings out that role. So it's not really answering about, about me. It's that kind of answering about whether the only correct choice is to become involved in a startup and, uh, um, and the latest version of you know how GPT-4 is going to use the medicine. It's not the only route. And, and certainly having some kind of hybrid route, like um, Fabian discussed in her podcast last week, um, the last time um, you were speaking, um, um, is a very interesting approach. Yeah. Wow, sounds super interesting, and maybe a good good way to wrap this up. I'll um, I'll try to like uh, I'll gather some links at the bottom of the of this podcast on how people can follow you, which you can send me afterwards. LinkedIn probably being the most obvious choice, right. um, but yeah thanks so much for your time this was super interesting we could touch on so many things like from veterinary surgery to working at an enterprise company medical device manufacturer and then regulation and finally ai and healthcare and how to regulate it i think a lot of that was really really interesting and not only for me but for other listeners too so thanks so much for joining me today Stephen, and have a great day thank you